Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Athletes. My name is Michael Raziel and I'm the host of the show where I get to have conversations with Olympic athletes, hopefuls, and legends on their story and path to the games. Today we have Olympic hopeful Chris Helwick. Chris is on the comeback tour. He went to two Olympic trials in 2008 and 2012, finished in 7th and 5th respectively. So right outside, you need the top three to make the games. Unfortunately, Chris did not make it at the 2012 Olympic trials is where he officially retired. And then he went on to be a quote unquote normal person. Um, after a few years of being a normal person, it didn't work out so well for him. So he decided to come back on the comeback trail. I guess. So super interesting conversation. Chris is a very smart guy. He knows what he's doing and it's pretty cool and very interesting listening to how he decided why he wanted to come back and how he did it, which was very cool. So very happy about that. So without further ado, here is Chris Helwick. All right, today, special guest, Chris Helwick, decathlete of USA track and field Olympic hopeful, born March 18th, 1985 in Greeley, Colorado, started track and field at the young age of nine years old. Definitely excited to hear why a nine-year-old wants to run around. Uh, graduated from the University of Tennessee as a seven-time NCAA All-American, three-time SEC champion, and University of Tennessee record holder in the indoor heptathlon. He, Chris is a Pan American champion, and he went to the Olympic trials in 2008 and 2012, retired in 2012, but is on the comeback trail. Chris, thanks for hanging out with me tonight, man. I appreciate it. Lovely to be here. Pleasure's all mine. I'm not going to the, I'm, I might go to the Olympics, but not as an athlete, just as a spectator. So hopefully, but uh, I think your story is a little bit cooler than mine. So let's, uh, let's jump into that a bit. So yeah, going back, starting track and field at nine years old. Um, I say it as kind of a joke, what nine-year-old doesn't want to run around, but it's more organized running around. So what, what does even like track and field look like when you're sub 10 years old? Yeah, it, it, track and field when you're nine, it's, it's a pretty casual affair, to be honest with you. They, uh, they, they don't like to scare us away too early with uh, sort of, you know, death workouts or anything like that. But growing up, I, I was always really big into soccer. You know, I, I started playing Mighty Might Soccer when I was probably five years old. And I, I just loved to run, to be honest with you. My dad was, was a runner. Um, he did a bunch of biathlons, uh, road races, things like that. And I, I sort of fell into his footsteps. So I, I just, I loved running around. Um, it, so it wasn't too hard of a sell to get me to um, get into track and field at nine. I really didn't know much about it at the time. And so like a lot of the events, uh, especially the field events, you know, high jump, long jump, um, you know, discus, shot put, that sort of thing. That was all new territory for me. And um, just being an, an athletic kid, it was a lot of fun to explore that territory. There's, there's no, there's no pressure on you at all when you're nine years old. It's really just a glorified field day. Um, but the way it worked was it was a summer track and field program called Caratrack here in Colorado. Um, and I had lots of friends who did it. And it, it was really just a good time. We'd, we'd go out there for an hour and a half, four days a week and, you know, get, get ourselves a little tired in the morning, to make it easier on our parents in the afternoon. I love that. Yeah. And I guess really other outside of like the running events, the rest of it as a nine-year-old, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you're not using the full shot put. Um, I'm sure you're not using the Olympic sized discus, but you know, so at that case it is, yeah, just kind of a field day, like run around and go do stuff, long jump uh, or high jump. Both of those sound awesome as a nine-year-old. I could see that being an absolute blast. 
They, they do. They are absolutely a blast. And it's, it's kind of a funny thing because it's so simple, right? It's like run as fast as you can down a runway and then jump as far as you can into a pit or, you know, set up a bar just in front of a mat and see how high you can get it without knocking it over. Um, I, yeah, I, I think the simplicity, honestly, the simplicity of track and field is um, something that meshes really well with a child's mindset. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, again, like, kind of not even realizing it like that's definitely what field day was right like i remember gym class when we were young and like thinking back we did do long jump and it, like they kind of taught you the rules but like whatever <laughs> you're nine you're ten it didn't really matter so that that is that is pretty cool so you get you get roped into track and field at nine as you said your dad did biathlons as well did you ever kind of run swim bike beside him or anything like that you know i, I used to run with him um <clears throat> i never did any biathlons and he, he wasn't much of a swimmer actually so that's why he did the biathlon. oh yeah you're right okay yeah, yeah. a run and a bike um but yeah you know honestly like my dad's example as a, a guy who just liked um he liked being fit he liked being healthy and he he, he liked pushing himself he, he liked to see how far he could take these things and um you know, I, of course, didn't realize these things explicitly as a kid, but I definitely picked up on that. And um, I, I'm sure it may, had, a, had a big impact on the way that I approached the, the sports that I did, e even if it was just going out and, and, and having fun as a nine-year-old kid in track. I wanted to see how far I could take it, too. I love it. I mean, bake that right into your subconscious, your unconscious, and it's a good thing to have there for the rest of your life, hopefully. So your dad did something, uh, something pretty good on his end. So I do like that. Um, so before we get into the, the rest of your story, obviously, as I said before, you're a decathlete. Mm -hmm. Deck means 10. I'm pretty sure I got that part right. So we're good there. Um, but what exactly is the decathlon? I know it's 10 different events. I can't name them all. And that's why you're here. So, Chris, if you don't mind telling us a little bit about the decathlon, not too much of the history. I don't know. You could give us some top line information. So that way when we, we watch you next year, next July, um, we'll kind of know what's going on and why you're doing what you're doing. Yeah, ab absolutely. So the, the decathlon is an event that's been in track and field for as long as um, uh, really as long as the Olympics have been around and uh, an event in track and field that, com that composes more than one event has been around since the ancient Olympics, but that's not really here or there. The, the modern decathlon is known as the test of the world's greatest athlete. Um, it composes 10 track and field events. So it's 10 track and field events rolled into one. It happens over the course of two days, five events each day, always in the same order. And, those events are on the first day, you come out and you run the 100 meter dash, the long jump, the shot put, a high jump, and the 400. And day two is the 110 meter high hurdles, the discus, pole vault, javelin, and 1500. And the, and the way that it works is that <clears throat> it, your, your place finish in each of these events doesn't really matter. It's really the, the specific mark that you get because there are scoring tables that have a certain number of points associated with every possible mark that you could get in an event. 
So if you run, say, 11 seconds flat in the 100, that's a certain number of points. And it's that way with, with all, all of the events. And so at the end of a decathlon, <clears throat> you've got 10 marks, hopefully. Um, you, you, you can get zero points in an event. I can, get, I can get into that if you want, but you, you add up all your points and you've got a total score. Um, sort of the elite level decathletes are scoring between 8,000 and 9,000 points. Um, you know, good collegiate guys are scoring between 7,000 and 8,000. And yes, yeah, so 7,000 is kind of that mark that, uh, makes you a is sort of considered to make you legit mm -hmm. that makes sense and that's this i mean that's really interesting I, i've heard that before i've spoken with some um some females i know don't run the decathlon they run the heptathlon if i'm not mistaken right Yes. Awesome. Um, so I know I've spoken with a few athletes on team USA on that side and, and I understand how it's not the, you know, who finishes the race first. It really doesn't matter. As you said, who finishes the race first. Um, it's more how you finish, I guess, if that makes sense, which is really interesting to me. Cause I, I come from, you know, the land of normal, normal air quotes for everybody listening sports, um, that it's, you know, who beat who that's the most important thing, but in reality it's not. So I guess, and it makes sense because if you have someone that runs the hundred way faster than everyone else, they deserve more points for that. Right. So it does, it does make sense. I guess what, um, what are, what are some of your scores? What's your highest score? If I'm not mistaken, back in 12 and, uh, what are some of your events that you really like to, uh, that you really like to rack up a couple points on? Yeah. Uh, so my, my personal best, I, I set it in the summer of 2008, actually. Oh. Um, but it's 8,143. It's my personal best. Um, I've, I've scored over that, that 8,000 mark three times. Um, my best events. So I, when, I, when I was nine years old, I, I really took the high jump. And like for, for many, many years, all the way through high school, actually, like the high jump was my thing. And, and so the high jump has always been a great event for me. Uh, I just find, I find that to be a lot of fun. Um, later on, the pole vault turned out to be a really good event for me. I learned that a little bit later on in my career. Uh, but that's certainly one of my, my better events. And uh, my best event by far is the javelin. Um, it's interesting. I learned that much later in my career as well, because the javelin, at least when I was in school, it wasn't thrown in high school in the state of Colorado. Some states do have a high school javelin, but Colorado didn't. Um, so I, I more or less learned that in college, and it turned out to be a really good event for me. Very and, cool. And then the, the, the 1500 is actually a really good event for me as well. The, the 1500 is is no decathlete's favorite event but um you know if it's if it's a good one for you you gotta you gotta embrace it absolutely and i like how they put that last that's pretty uh very kind of you know sh the, the the knife's in let's just twist it a little bit right we're already there you might as well twist it so that's kind of funny um how they put the longest distance run no don't give people the sprint no 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 no, no. Let, let, let's let's test their endurance after all those events so that uh that i could see that being pretty brutal um test but fortitude as well yeah, to say the least yes that is that is incredible so um thank you for that chris always nice to learn a little bit about the sports as well as i said 
we really only watch these once every four years, unfortunately or fortunately, and we'll hopefully be watching you pretty soon do all 10 of these, which we're very excited about. Um, so after high school, you go obviously recruited or whatever, walk on to Tennessee. What was that process like? I mean, that's a pretty well-known school, SEC country. Um, what, is, what is going to Tennessee? And I guess, why did you leave the state of Colorado to go to be a volunteer? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was I was very fortunate to go to the University of Tennessee. That that was you know being there was and it was just an incredible four years. I I had a fantastic experience. Like I, I had a lot of success, but just from a personal standpoint, it was really an enjoyable time there. Um, but the way that happened was um, so right before my senior year of high school my high school coach introduced me to the decathlon. I actually didn't know what a decathlon was until I was 17 years old. <clears throat> but my high school coach, he was a decathlete himself at the University of New Mexico. Uh, he competed in the 84 trials himself, and he, he just always had an eye for potential decathlon talent. So he, he, re he really ushered me into, into the event. Um, and what happened was, so decathlon is also not contested in high school in the state of Colorado. Um, some states it is, but it, not in Colorado. Um, and so my high school coach, his name is Marty Nybauer. Um, he got me to enter a few decathlons during the summer months outside of school, just to, at first, just to see if I liked it, if to see if I could catch on to all the other events that I hadn't been doing. Um, and, and just to sort of immerse me in, in what it was all about. And it, it turned out to, to be a really good thing. I, I caught on to it really well. Um, I had a little mishap in my, my first ever decathlon where I no hide it in the pole vault at eight feet, which is what, um, uh, you know, that's actually lower than the world record in the high jump. Uh, but I, I failed to uh, clear it with a pole, but that was okay. I, I came back in my next decathlon and uh, I, I ended up clearing 11 feet in the pole vault and, and having a really good competition. The whole thing sort of snowballed. Like the summer that I tried my first decathlon, I ended up doing three of them. And the last one was the U.S. Junior Championships, which was held in, in Berkeley, California. Um, I, I never thought that I was going to end up there. It just kind of happened that way because I kept doing better and better. And, and being on that stage got me a lot of recognition across the country as sort of an, an up-and-coming decathlete. And so, so I had this early decathlon experience on my resume. <clears throat> I was sold on being a decathlete at this point. It was just, I, I, I loved having more things to do, um, learning all of the different techniques of the event like, like that's both a physical and a mental challenge that I really gravitated towards um, sort of the idea that you could never master this event you, you can only wrestle with it and, and do as well as you can that that really appealed to me um, so anyways going into my senior year of high school <clears throat> I reached out to um, a number of schools across the country that I knew had established decathlon programs um, sort of a history of, of cultivating Catholics. 
and Tennessee was on that list because uh, the head coach at the time, Bill Webb, he was, uh, it, it's still is really a, a legendary decathlon coach with a long history of, of producing great decathletes. So I, I got in touch with him early on in my senior year and, um, you know, I just called him up on the phone, asked him if he had seen the resume that I sent him and he said, no. Um, he said, but I have a, I have a stack of mail on my desk and maybe it's in here. Let me take a look. So as, as I'm on the phone with, with Bill Webb, um, you know, he's opening my, my, the resume that I'd mailed him and he takes a look at it and he's like, Oh yeah, this is, uh, this looks pretty good. You want to be decathlete, huh? I said, yes, yes, sir. I, I do. He's like, well, you know, we'd love to have you for a visit. And, um, so it, it, I, I ended up going on a visit to the university of Tennessee, um, sometime in the fall of my, my senior year of high school. And, and I was just instantly sold on it. Um, I visited a few other schools after that, but um, Tennessee was just, it was really the place for me. They had a great collection of decathletes, a great culture, um, and, and it was really just an incredible school that has always um, treated athletes very well, and that was very apparent. So I, I, was, I was happy to put on the orange and become a volunteer. And you did pretty darn well. Shout out Marty. Shout out Bill. Um, obviously, saying how it's always interesting. I love hearing these stories because there's always just a very easy no somewhere in there, which would have literally derailed the whole thing. If Marty was like, "Hey, do you want to try this out?" I'm like, "Nah, you know, it's summer. I kind of want to hang out with my friends." Like, "Okay, cool," and that's it. And then you know, again, like it's just that easy. It could have been done. And you said, "No, let you sure. Let me try it out." And the, by the third, the third one, you're already at the uh, junior cha national championships. Um, and then that allows you to then go to Tennessee, get a great education, compete. And, uh, oh, yeah, what did I say before? You were a seven-time NCAA All-American, three-time SEC champion, and you're a record holder. Uh, so that's pretty cool. I think you made the right decision, Chris. Um, sounds like you made the right decision. So Rocky Top, let's go. Love it. Um, and congratulations to you for all of that. Um, you've also... Uh, representing the United States on multiple stages, including the Pan American Games, where you actually won a championship. What what does it mean to you to put on the Stars and Stripes? Obviously, to put on that Tennessee orange, that volunteer orange is very important because that's kind of, I guess, where you cut your teeth, if I may. But, um, you know, what is it like putting the Stars and Stripes on and, and representing your country um, on such a great stage, on such a grand stage in, in an event, as you put it, and I've heard it said on CTV, multiple times um ex excuse me for paraphrasing but the world's greatest athlete like that's incredible and you are one of the people in competition to be one of the world's greatest athletes whether you finish in first or a hundredth um one of the hundredth greatest athletes on the planet is pretty darn cool if you ask me so what's that like and uh, what what um really i guess gets you going about doing that yeah it, it really is you know what it's one of the highest honors in, in track and field um it, it, we all know that the United States is very dominant in the sport of track and field. And so being able to make that team is, is a tremendous honor. Um, no, no matter what competition you're representing the U S in, uh, you know, for me, I, I've never made one of the global finals, the, the world championships or the Olympic games, but I have represented the U S in, um, in a meet called the Thorpe cup, which is the U S versus Germany decathlon. Um, as you said, I've been uh, part of the Pan American Combined Events Championships a couple of times, um, and 
You know, I, I think, honestly, I think it's meant something different to me as I've gotten older. You know, when you're young, <clears throat> at least when I was young, and I think it's probably true for, for a lot of young athletes, um, it's, it's kind of a, a symbol of status. You know, you feel very proud that you, you the, the name on your jersey is now a country. Like at one point it was a, it was a high school and there was maybe, you know, a thousand or 2000 kids in your school and that's who you're representing. And then you, you moved on to the collegiate level and now you've got, you know, the name of a state on your Jersey and, you know, you're representing a school that has 25,000 kids, you know, you're, you're a division one athlete. You've kind of made it to the next level. And then finally you're, you've got a country. On, on New Jersey, and it's it's the one of the biggest and most powerful countries in the world, and that that just feels that feels very good. It feels like you've feels like you've arrived in a way. Um, <clears throat> I I think for me now, like as as time has gone on, and I've had some time away from the sport, and just this past year, I, I was able to re represent the U.S. again in the in the Thorpe Cup, the U.S. versus Germany decathlon this past summer. And I, and I put on the jersey again, <clears throat> and I, I, I can tell you it felt different. Um, it's, it, it's quite a privilege to be able to represent a group that is essentially 325 million people. And when you're, when you're 19 and, you know, your perspectives are somewhat limited just by the, the fact that you're 19 and, you know, you've, you've had limited experiences, it, it's hard to really wrap your head around the, the gravity of representing a country in competition. Um, and so, you know, I think every year that goes by, I appreciate it more and more. Um, it, it's, it's a, it's a greater and greater honor. And, um, you know, I, I really the greatest, the greatest thrill that I could imagine is going to what, what I, what I call uh, the global final of track and field. So something that like a lot of people don't, don't quite grasp is that three out of every four years track and field holds a global final. And one out of every four of those years is the Olympics. But two out of every four of those years, it's the world championships. And in both, and you know, the, the Olympics is a grand spectacle and there's a lot of fanfare around it. <clears throat> but ultimately, um, the world championships of track and field and, and the Olympic Games are on, on equal footing in terms of the caliber of competition. And so to go to this, like the greatest thrill I can possibly imagine, and, and what I'm what I'm working for right now it is to be part of that competition. I mean, compete amongst the best of the best and, and to do it with, uh, with your country on your Jersey. I mean, that's, that's just, uh, I mean, that, that's an exciting, exciting thing. Um, and I, I, you know, in a few short months, I, I hope to be doing that. We're crossing our fingers for you, Chris. I promise you that, man. Um, just a couple things that, that you said that kind of uh, piqued my ears a little bit. One was, you know, definitely I, I, I appreciate that it means something different and it means something else, I guess, 
or, or the feeling is different now when you put on the jersey versus when you were a little bit younger, um, as you said, based on experiences and, and, and worldviews and being shaped um, by those experiences. But also what I've heard, um, again, I'm not really an athlete, so I would never know, but um, what I've heard is when you put on that jersey at a young age, it's then expected that you're going to be putting it on more and more and more, when in reality that is not the case because the next year – injuries happen there's someone else that's younger and just a little bit better than you so they kick you out there's so many different things that can happen that you know when you put it on once or twice especially when you're younger I've been told that it kind of feels like it'll just continue to happen year after year when that is a hundred percent not the case um and then the other point uh, that that you made that I think is very Im- impressive um oh shoot it's gone I don't remember Let's talk about that other thing then. I mean, did you ever feel like that when you were younger with like, you know, we put it on at a younger age that you kind of just expected it almost not because you're entitled just because, Hey, I'm, I'm this many years old and I'm going to get better for X more years. So I expect that I'll still be one of the best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In, in a way I did. Um, you know, I, I guess I didn't think about it so much as like, I'm going to continue representing the United States, but when you're young, <clears throat> I, I think that really the thing that you see on the horizon is the Olympics and the world championships, uh, but the Olympics in particular, it, that, that's, that, that is like the end of the road, honestly. I mean, that, you can call it a pinnacle of the sport, which I think that it is. Um, but in terms of like, so part, part of the fun of like, being a track and field athlete, especially one who is pursuing the Olympics, is the adventure of progress. So working towards your goal, um, I mean, that's really the fun. You Year by year, getting a little bit better, getting a little bit better, um, being part of more prestigious competitions, being part of uh, more competitive fields, the process of moving towards the Olympics is really where the fun is because once, once you've had that glory of the Olympics, or let's say, you know, you're a gold medalist or um, even a world record holder. Well, well then, then you've had it and and there's, there's no more adventure towards it. You know, you can repeat it and and I'm sure that that's fun as well. Um, so I'm, I'm going off on a little trail here, but my point is that like when I was younger, I put on the USA Jersey at the age of 18 for the first time. And, and yes, to answer your question, I just thought like, man, I'm, I'm 18. I've made a U.S. national team. I'm going to represent my country in the junior Pan American championships in Barbados. Um, they're flying me out there. I'm like, this is a sign of what's to come. Like I'm on the road to where I ultimately want to be, which is the Olympics. Um, and I, I don't think that I, I took it for granted. I just thought that it was a good omen at the age of 18 and that um, it made the aspiration of being an Olympian more realistic for me. Absolutely. And that does make sense. I mean, what 18 year old wouldn't think that? No, I don't think anyone would fault you for that, Chris. I think it's kind of the, the it would probably if i was ever put in that position crossing my fingers um it would feel like that's the natural progression okay at 18 i'm doing 
you know, one of the most impressive things that an 18 year old can do in my sport. Perfect. That means when I'm 19 and when I'm 20 and 21 and 25, I will continue to be that. Um, and again, at, at 18, at 19, I was a lot dumber at 18 and 19 than I am now at 28. So it makes sense why someone would think that as well. So I think it's always very, very important. And I remember my other point, and I'm actually going to utilize that to hop into the next. So you were talking about the world championships and I've been told in other sports that as big of a spectacle to use your word is that the Olympics are, it's, it's the media coverage. It's the billions of people that will watch on, on some form of device on through social media and whatever. And we'll understand who you are and what you do um, and actually watch you on TV, which I think is super cool. Um, but I've been told in multiple different sports that the world championships and then the Olympic trials, those are, here, especially here in the United States, in a sport like uh, decathlon or really just track and field in general, those two can, you know, the Olympic trials could be the hardest event out and the, the world championships could then be the next hardest event with, with the Olympics actually coming in third because of the way seating works and because of the way the numbers of people that can go and the, the people that might sit out because they're training for the Olympic. There's so many different things involved that I've been told the, the U.S. trials that's actually the hardest event you might have to go through. Um, and as you said, as the United States is such a powerhouse in the sport and, uh, you know, in the field of track and field, um, I can understand that. So like in 2008, you got to go to the Olympic trials. So first let's ask, how do you qualify for the Olympic trials? Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's actually pretty straightforward for track and field. Um, you, USA track and field, the governing body puts out qualifying standards. Um, the process, um, well, I don't think the process changes much from year to year, but the qualifying standards will change year to year, not by a lot, but um, they put out a list of standards, just which just means marks for each event. <clears throat> and if you reach that mark, uh, you get to be part of the, Olymp the Olympic trials. But they also set a number for how big of a field they won in each event. So for example, a typical number for decathlon at the Olympic trials would be 18 competitors. They want 18 guys competing. So they'll, they'll put an automatic qualifying mark that's pretty high, um, say 7,900 points. That's probably what it'll be for 2020. And whoever reaches 7,900 points in, in any meet, well, any sanctioned meet prior to that, um, or in, in the year prior gets to automatically go and then they'll fill the rest of the slots of the field with the next best marks. So it's sort of a descending order. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Makes sense. That is actually relatively straightforward. Um, so you hit that mark twice at least, um, with 08 and 12, um, 2008, you're 23 years old, give or take, uh, fresh out of college. What was that experience like? Um, I, were you expected to be potentially in that top three and get to go to the games? Like what, what, were that, what was that like and kind of what was the pressure and, and those expectations and that atmosphere like for you at such a young age? Yeah. So in, in 2000, 2008, in decathlon especially, was extremely competitive. Um, three of the best decathletes in the world were Americans. Um, you had <clears throat> Tom Pappas, uh, Brian Clay, and Trey Hardy. 
I mean, in, in, in the world of decathlon and track and field, those are pretty household names. Um, they, they've all been Olympic and world championship medalists. And it, anyways, they were, all three of them were in this meet and um, there was a bunch of other great guys in the meet as well. So no, I was not expected to be in the top three. I was certainly not a favorite for that. Um, however, you know, even so, this is the Olympic trials. It's something that only happens once every four years. And th th there's a lot of attention on it. And I, I think every athlete puts quite a bit of pressure on themselves to perform at their best for this meet. They, they want to have a great showing. Um, I'd never competed at uh, the University of Oregon before, which is where it's at. Um, it was it was probably the biggest um, the biggest audience I'd ever performed in front of, and there's just a ton of energy in there. I, I you know it was like my, my expectations were pretty were pretty moderate. Like like I said, I wasn't a favorite, um, and I was I was doing really well that season. I was kind of on a roll. Um, so, so for me, it was just a lot of fun. Um, I, I wouldn't say that it was just carefree and I was just doing, doing whatever I wanted to, but um, I, I, I remember that meet being uh, pretty smooth for me from a physical and a mental standpoint. Um, and I felt like it was a great introduction to mm -hmm. the trials I, I felt like I, I like okay this is my first Olympic trials I just like you said I was fresh out of school not a favorite uh, but still performed really well I was like this is this is a great warm-up for 2012 and 2012 that's when I'm going to capitalize um, I'm going to have four years to develop and that's when I'm, I'm going to make the Olympic team that, that's hey. sure what was going through my head yeah, and that, and that makes sense. I mean, as you as you kind of set the stage, there's those three gentlemen that uh, were were highly highly ranked. It sounds like, and as you said, three of the best in the world at the same time at the same event. I mean, I'm sure there was a couple guys that had uh, had high hopes, and I'm sure you you had some expectations for yourself. But it makes sense that it was probably best to look at this as you said, a warm up, get ready, understand. You know, one thing that I you know. Michael Jordan didn't win the um, NBA finals the first year he went to the playoffs, right? No, like you have to kind of get there, get your feet wet, understand what playoffs are like. And essentially the Olympic trials are the, are the playoffs before the playoffs, but you have to get there. Um, so it's impressive that you made it there at a young age and really got to experience that. As you said, the atmosphere, the energy, everything there was, was pretty awesome. So from 2008 to 2012, as you said, you had four years to develop and understand and learn and let those older guys kind of, you know, get out of the sport to allow, allow some of these younger guys to pop in like yourself. So you're 27 years old. I mean, what was, what were those four years like and how did you kind of handle yourself um, when understanding, you know, the sports you're better at, the sports you're not as great at and really having, you know, four years sounds like a really long time, mm -hmm. but I'm sure it didn't feel as long as it probably would have uh, if, you know, people in their regular professions were only looking ahead to once every four years. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So, I, you know, the, the four years following 2008 were, were an interesting time for me as an athlete. Um, 
as I said, my, I set my personal best of 81.43. Um, it actually in a meet just following the Olympic trials in 2008. So it was that summer that I had my, my lifetime best. And I was doing really well that year, as I said before. And, and I did so well that year that um, I started to get invited to these really big meets in Europe as a result. So during the fall, um, following the 2008 season, getting ready for 2009, a world championship year. So that was, that was on my mind. Um, I, I got these invitations to these big meets. Um, one in particular was called uh, the Hypo Meeting in Gossitz, Austria. This is sort of like the premier decathlon outside of the World Championships and Olympics. It's where Roman Severly set the world record in 2001. Um, uh, it's, it's the place to be for, for a decathlete. And, and so I've, I've got this invitation. I, this is just like perfectly, I, like I couldn't have written the story of my decathlon career any better. Than, than being invited to this meet next where I could, you know, sort of showcase my talents on an international level and just keep building and building. Well, as fate would have it, I, I ended up suffering a pretty major injury in February of 2009, right as the season was getting going. I was just doing some indoor meets to, to sharpen up for the upcoming outdoor season. And I had this major injury to my left foot. And it was, it, it was so serious that it kept me out. It kept me out of competition for the entire year. Um, I had to call the meet directors that had invited me to these big meets, <clears throat> tell them that I was injured and that I wouldn't be able to make it. Um, please, <laughs> please think of me next time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That sort of thing. And I was, I, I was devastated. To be honest with you, I, I was, it was a very difficult time coming off of this high of 2008 where I'm just charging ahead, making the kind of making progress at the rate that I feel like I need to in order to be where I need to in 2012. Um, and then I got halted by this major injury. So I spent an entire year recovering from that, dealing with that. Um, oddly enough, <clears throat> You know, sitting on my butt for 2009, trying to get myself healthy again was exhausting. It was mentally exhausting dealing with an injury that was kind of, it was kind of complicated at first. We didn't know what was the problem. And then one, once I caught on, um, tried a few different treatments and it was just, it was just a big maze to get back to health. And that was an, an exhausting process. So kind of missed 2009 in a big way and 2010 rolls around and, you know, I'm like, finally, I'm back, I'm healthy, I'm ready to go again, let's do this. And, um, you know, I get back into my training and I'm just having a hard time getting back to where I was before. And what ended up happening was, you know, I, I had this big peak in 2008, sat out 2009, and then 2010, 11, and 12, um, I really plateaued in a, in a big way. <clears throat> I, went, I went back down to scoring what I had been scoring just prior to my big meets in 2008, um, but I couldn't move past it. I was still performing at a high level. I was still 
qualifying for the national championships, um, placing pretty high. Um, and, you know, as you mentioned, even in 2012, I finished fifth at the Olympic trials, which was a very respectable finish. Um, but oddly enough, through this whole time, even though I was performing at a high level, I really felt like a failure. Um, because it was so difficult to spend your entire life from the age of nine, truly from the age of nine, and make progress year after year after year. Um, at first, you know, largely due to general just maturation, um, and, and, and later through technical development. But like for the first time ever, I was plateauing and I, and I didn't deal with it well, um, as, as many athletes don't. So the last three years of my career were, were actually quite difficult. <clears throat> um, at the time, they were very disappointing. I, I, don't, I don't see them in the same way now. Uh, you know, I've, I've had a long time to reflect on what those experiences meant to me and, um, you know, how it was that I dealt with them. But, yeah, so when I, when I finished the Olympic trials in 2012, um, I knew it was my last meet. I'd been, I'd known the entire year that I was going to, I was going to finish, I was going to finish the 2012 season, no matter how it ended, Olympics or not, and then I'd be done. And so when I walked off the track in 2012, uh, just a couple of spots shy of making the team, um, I was done. And I, I, you know, I actually felt like I retired the moment I crossed the line in that, in that final race. Um, and I was pretty relieved to be doing so, to be honest with you. I, I didn't, I really didn't have a negative impression of my track and field career, but I was certainly tired and I was certainly just ready to move on from athletics. And was a lot of that due to that injury, I guess, because I mean, you finished fifth and as you said, and we've talked about in a country of a like a powerhouse country in this premier sport. So clearly you're one of the best in the world at this point. You know, obviously I don't know your rank you do, but like clearly you still had something in you and obviously, Hey, that's why we're here now. Right. But like, even back then at 27, like that sounds like a, it sounds more like a decision out of frustration than a decision. Like if you took off a year, um, obviously you took off multiple years, but like, it sounds like that was one of those like, okay, cool. Like I did this. Let me, just get away from the game for a minute, take a breather and maybe come back in a couple of years and see what happens. But that didn't sound like that was even an, an option back then. Hmm. No, it really wasn't. I I'd been, I'd compete. I'd been competing in decathlons specifically decathlons for 11 years straight, <clears throat> trying to be the best decathlete I could possibly be constantly having this, this goal of reaching the pinnacle of the sport uh, and really fighting tooth and nail through those, those five years post-collegiately um, to make that happen. Um, and and like, I, like I said, I was, I was mentally and physically worn out. Um, and I, I was just, I, you know, being an athlete for your entire life like that, you know, up until the age of 27, it's certainly a wonderful experience. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. <clears throat> but at the same time, you do put a lot of things on hold when you do that. Um, it's, it's an opportunity cost. I, I, I kind of shy away from saying it's sacrifice. I, I mean, you just, you choose to do one thing, you know, and, 
and by saying yes to one thing, like saying yes to devoting your life to becoming a decathlete, you say no to a lot of other things. And I, I was ready to just, I, I was ready to see what a lot of those other things were. I, I was ready to explore life, to be honest with you. I was like, I, I, athlete had been the center of my identity for so long. It had been the center of my day for so long. You know, I wake up and training was the most important thing I was going to do that day. It was going to take the most time. And that's kind of how I lived my life for a very long time. And I, I just wanted to see what else there was to life. Um, and so it, 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 it really wasn't, I'll be honest with you, it wasn't the injury in 2009 <clears throat> that derailed me. I'll be honest with you, I, I think that it was really my mentality towards what I was doing those last three years that kept me from sort of reaching my next level of progress. And what I mean by that was that I was so focused on external success. I was so focused on being, earning that label of Olympian. I was so intent on, on, on reaching that next level of status in the, in the sport that I actually lost touch with my innate love of athletics. I, I lost touch with my love of being an athlete, um, developing and expressing my athleticism. And I didn't realize that until much later, but that is for sure, sure what happened. And I think the, the fact that I was so focused on external results during that time um, the work became a means to an end. Whereas when I was a kid through high school, even through college, it was just plain fun. I, I mean, it just like, that's how I would have spent recess when I was a little kid was just running around, seeing how far I could throw rocks. Um, but it, it became, it became more do or die later on in my career. And so that was, um, you know, that was totally on me. Like that was something I could have controlled. Um, I, I didn't have, I guess I didn't have the experience to um, see it differently. I, I guess it, it was the experience that has allowed me to see it differently. But uh, yeah, like, like I said, at the, at the time it was, it was far more serious than it, than it really needed to be. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, that, that's the point I was, you brought it up. Like, you know, it's, it's think about it when you were nine, you just did it cause it was fun. Um, and now you're doing it, as you said, you know, that, uh, we have a couple of cliches we can throw out there too close to the forest to see the trees, right? You too, you're too intent on, on that, that goal of the Olympics that you couldn't really re remember why you were there in the first place. Um, it's the, it's the destination. It's the journey, not the destination. There we go. Let's get that one right. And I truly believe in that one. That one's I try and live by that every day. Cause if you ever make it to the destination, well then what are you going to do? <laughs> right? Like, okay, now I'm here. Okay. This was cool. Like, what am I going to do now? You have to actually enjoy the process. And I know it's again, another cliche, but it is, it is, um, you know, you do have to really think about that part of it. And I tell myself that every day, sometimes I get a little wrapped up, but, um, you know, obviously I do something a little different. Um, and there's really no end game. It's just a continuous, let's, let's just keep going. So I can see that being pretty, uh, 
pretty difficult. And, um, I mean, I understand why, you know, thank you for going through that pretty intimate, pretty awesome, uh, way of explaining it and really getting a good sense of, I mean, shoot, I'm 28 right now, just turned 28 a couple of days ago. So I, I can understand as a 27 year old, geez, um, you know, how, how I could really lose sight of something like that and really kind of getting, get your head far, far deep down that hole and really kind of spiraling out, I guess, um, is, is what it sounds like, uh, you may have done. And so like what, you know, you, as you even said, like once you crossed the line, it was over. Um, it's impressive that you made it that far. So many more people, if, if you knew the whole year, all right, I know when my last race is to even get there might've been difficult, but I mean, still finishing top five in the United States at, at an incredible sport, um, is very, very impressive in itself. So I guess then, you know, after you crossed that line and you had that weight lifted, that anchor off your back, what, what were the, the next few years like? And what was it like being a, uh, you know, quote unquote, normal person for a minute? Yeah. Well, it was, it was a, a beautiful and very difficult experience. I'll, I'll tell you. Um, I, I didn't foresee this at all. I, I couldn't anticipate this. But when I did retire from athletics, you know, like I said, athlete had been the center of my identity for as long as I could remember since five years old. And so when I retired and I definitively laid to rest my athletic identity, I said, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm I'm moving on from athletics. I'm going to do something else. I was left with this gaping hole in my identity. I'll be honest with you. It was... That's why I said it was so, it was beautiful and it was difficult. Um, I had the opportunity to, to explore so many other interests, interests that I never knew that I had. That was the beautiful part. But the difficult part was uh, really living for, I don't know, a year, a year and a half, maybe two years, really trying and struggling to figure out who I was and what I was all about. Uh, because I, I really had to, I had to find find a new life. Um, what I ended up doing was uh, one thing I'd been interested in was starting my own business. I had a bit of an entrepreneurial itch, and one one of the goals that I had uh, for a long time was to start and run my own business. And so I, I ended up doing that. Um, I ended up partnering with an old college teammate of mine, a good friend. His name is Andy Lane. And we started a company called InSpot Media. Uh, InSpot Media was a, uh, still is, it's a digital signage and advertising company. Uh, putting television screens in gyms and health clubs and then running uh, di- digital presentations and advertising on them. Uh, and so th- this gave me an outlet right away. Like it, it gave me something to work on, and and that was um, that that was a very good thing for me. I needed something to pour my time and energy into, and so for for a number of years, uh, we worked on just starting this business from scratch. Uh, we really bootstrapped the thing, um, you know, sort of borrowed money from friends and family and credit cards to make this thing happen, and. Um, got this thing off the ground and it, it was, it was interesting. I, uh, you know, I set out that the objective was to, uh, start and run my own business. And, and after about two years, we, we got this thing through a pretty stable place and I realized I accomplished my goal, but, um, 
I, I realized that the work itself wasn't very interesting to me. Um, I, I didn't have much of a passion for, for advertising. Uh, the reason we started the company was because, you know, the, we both wanted to be our own bosses um, and the idea itself held up to scrutiny. And so that's why we, we got that thing going. <clears throat> but um, one, of, one of the first big lessons that I learned post-retirement from track and field was just how essential it is to get some sort of intrinsic satisfaction, some sort of intrinsic reward um, from your work if, if you're going to be doing something of significance. You know, if, you know if, you're just, if you just have an aptitude for a task and you know, you're paid to perform that task, well, maybe that can just be a nice transaction. You do X amount of hours of work and you get paid um, Y amount of dollars, and, that, and that's fine. But you know, if you're gonna do something of significance, and, there's, and most jobs really are of significance, I mean, just think about, you know, I'm talking about teachers, firefighters, uh, professional athletes, um, parents even, like these sorts of jobs that require you to really pour your heart and soul into them. You can't just, you can't just be sort of mindless in, in performing these tasks. You have to be there. You have to be committing um, a lot of emotional energy to, to these jobs. And, and what I realized in starting, starting a business, and for anybody who's thinking about being a small business owner, it is not just sunshine and rainbows. That's a very difficult road to go as you well know, um, there, there has to be some intrinsic satisfaction from the work itself or else it, it just isn't gonna last, it's not sustainable. And so a um, couple, couple of years into this work, I realized that it, was, it just wasn't sustainable for me to continue doing it and so I, I had to get out of it. Um, <clears throat> my partner was much more enthusiastic about marketing and advertising and it suited him very well. Um, so it was an easy transaction for us. He, he bought my half of the business and I moved on. He's still doing it to this day. Um, but uh, yeah, that was, that was a, big, a big lesson that I got right out of the shoot. And it reminded me, well, I mean, it, it, it was one of the things that really highlighted this lesson about my track and field career where I had... I had neglected, it's not that the intrinsic satisfaction wasn't there for the taking in those final years as a track and field athlete, but I refused it. I, I was so narrowly focused on that objective success, reaching that or, or obtaining that status of, a, of an elite track and field athlete as an Olympian that I, I neglected the intrinsic satisfaction that was there for me through the work itself. And then, so by doing that, I made the work um, a toil. I, I made it a means to an end. And that was precisely what made it so exhausting and not sustainable for me. You, you asked me, you know, like you were still performing at a high level. Why didn't you, you know, perhaps take a year or two off and get back into it? <clears throat> well, reason was because the payout was no longer there for me. Didn't see it at the time, but I just wasn't getting that intrinsic reward anymore. Yeah, I mean, it's it's if if you don't enjoy what you do, it is 
crazy to me how many people, and I don't want to say waste their lives because it's not my place to say what, what you should or should not do. Right. But I mean, I talked to so many people, you know, my brother who's 24 years old Mm. already hates his job. And I'm just like, dude, you have to do this for 40 more years. You better pick something you'd like. I mean, 40, 50, 60 more years, pick something you'd like. Oh, but the money, it's like, well, who cares? You could literally make money doing anything now. The internet exists. It doesn't matter. Like, don't give me that excuse. Like, it's, it's comfort. And a lot of people get fall into comfort, and I, in my opinion. But yeah, I, I did what I hated for two years because of the money. Realized, thankfully, at a young age that I didn't want to do that anymore. And then started doing something that I actually enjoy. When I wake up in the morning, it's not, oh my gosh, like, I'm going to hate the next 10 hours of my day. It's oh my gosh, this is going to be pretty cool. I'm going to talk to some really interesting people about some really interesting things. This is going to be a blast. So, you know, I totally, totally understand. And if you, you have to see it though, right? Like in certain situations, like as you said, like you wanted to be your own boss. Okay, well, that's an okay reason to want to be an entrepreneur, right? Like you should want to do something that you want to do and be your own boss, but right. you did something. You enjoyed a little bit of it, it sounds like. It was probably pretty cool. You made a couple of dollars. It was fun. It's nice to grow something, be a part of a team, right? That whole thing. But I mean, just going back to the track and field part of it, you're the entrepreneur of your track and field career, right? Like you're the owner of it. You're the CEO. You decide what you do when you do it in certain situations. Um, so really not seeing the enjoyment, not remembering, not seeing it through the eyes of nine-year-old Chris, seeing it through the eyes of 25, 26, 27-year-old Chris, when it's, it's work, it's not play, it's, it's work, it's not activity. Um, I always find ne- work has a negative connotation to it, right? Like no one's like, I get to work today. Like it's, I have to work today. You get to train today. You get to try and become an Olympian. You get to try and become better every single day. Um, and having that mentality and just using that get instead of have, um, has personally worked well, very well for me. Um, so you, you leave the, the company that you started. Congratulations. Still there. Shout out your partner. You said his name before, but you know, no free ads, but I'll give him this one. No, I'm kidding. Um, uh, but, you know, definitely, you know, so, I mean, that was only two of the six years, correct? Um, unless my math is just totally off. I mean, what else kind of was going on during that time period? Yeah. Um, so, I, I actually worked on Inspire Media for five years in total. Oh, okay. It, okay. It, it was like halfway through that I realized this. Um, oh. Yeah. Oh, geez. <laughs> <laughs> But the thing was, when you realize this sort of thing, your, your business isn't always primed to be sold for a profit at that point. So it, it needed some work. Um, and so, uh, I, yeah, it just made sense to, to keep working on it for a while. Um, and, and I suppose doing that just drove the lesson home even harder is that, you know, you, you, can't, you can't do something that's... Um, that you don't get a rise out of. And, you know, like, like I think something that you said that I thought was just really spot on was like, if you're not getting an, an intrinsic satisfaction out of your work, like no amount of money is going to be enough. You will always feel shorted. Like you, you might feel like your compensation is fair. You know, like, well, this is what, like people who do what I do, they make about this much money and that's, it's fair right? It's good enough. But you always feel like, but I should be making a little bit more, you know, like I really work hard at this. I sacrifice some weekends and some evenings and like, you know what, like next quarter, I'm going to ask for a raise because I really, I really deserve it. And like, 
that will continue in perpetuity if you really don't enjoy your work. Um, but sorry, a bit of a tangent. Um, <clears throat> yeah, during the six years, like honestly, a, a lot, <laughs> a lot happened. Um, I, I will tell you that sort of the reformation of my identity took a long time. Um, oh, well, I'm sorry. I don't, don't mean to cut you off, but one point just thought of, I mean, the analogy of you realizing at the beginning of that 2012 season that the Olympic trials was your last race. I mean, same thing here with the business. And, and again, going back to that same thing of, of work, not activity, you knew two and a half years through Mm -hmm. this isn't the place I want to be. This is not what I'm going to be doing, but understanding that, Hey, you know, there's at least a point I can get to. Um, and that point was at least some sort of level of profitability. So at least you have the work ethic. We found that out multiple times throughout the story that you can get to where you need to go to. Um, not even wanting to get there really. It sounds like you, you did get there multiple times. So I apologize. That's just an interesting analogy that we're going to, might, might hop back and forth between a couple times. Yeah, no, no problem at all. I appreciate, I appreciate that, that, uh, recognition. Um, I, I, yeah, I do feel like that that is, uh, an asset of mine because, you know, some life, life isn't always just pure intrinsic reward. There are, there are tough times. Mm -hmm, right? Absolutely. You got to push through the storms. Um, but as long as you keep that long-term vision, you know, the storms are, uh, yeah, a lot more manageable to deal with. So yeah, during during this time period, I you know there was there was a couple of years where I knew the end was coming, in terms of my time with with Inspire Media, and I, um, you know, unlike my final couple of years of track and field, where I actually knew what was going to happen, I, I started putting the pieces of this business together prior to my retirement, so that I would have something to move into. I had absolutely no idea what was going to happen or what I was going to do with my life after I retired or after I, I sold my share of the business and moved on. I, when I realized that I couldn't be doing that business anymore, I also didn't know what else I would do. I didn't know what excited me. Um, it's not that I didn't have other interests. I had many, many interests. Um, in fact, I had this burgeoning of interests after I retired from track and field because I had all this time and this new perspective and um, really a, a, a drive to figure out who I was and what I was about. So it wasn't a lack of interests, but I just didn't know what they added up to in the real world. You know, it's like, you know, we, we can be interested in a lot of things, but how do you put that together to, to make uh, a living for yourself? Um, so one of the things I decided to do. In, in One second. Was that, was that feeling freeing? Because as you said, like you kind of knew what was going to happen after track and field. Was that kind of a, like a, a nice feeling to have knowing like, uh, let's see, <clears throat> you know, Yes, it, it was. In, it, in a big way, it was a wonderful feeling. I, I was really getting in. I had been like this diligent planner and kind of like type A personality my entire life. I'm surprised. I, yeah, I know. <laughs> and um, during this 
time post retirement, I was I was kind of embracing the other side of that. Um, I, I've been it spent my whole life like you know figuring out you know when I wanted to retire and you know all these crazy long term plans that like you could never actually prepare for. And uh, I, I I decided to turn it on its head and and really kind of embrace the unknown. Um, it it was scary. I, I won't I won't lie. Like it was quite a quite a thrill as like a type a personality to to embrace just waiting and seeing um let's just see what materializes but but i but i did it uh because i felt like that's what needed to happen and i i did it in in such a i i actually did that in like a type a personality way and and the way that i did it was i i decided i was going to move to australia so after I sold, after I sold my business, um, not knowing what I was going to do next with my life, really, I, I decided that I would move to Australia. Um, I was going to move to the city of Adelaide, which is the capital of South Australia. And uh, I chose that because a good friend of mine had gone to medical school there. Uh, he always spoke very highly of it. And like where I went didn't really matter so much. I just wanted to go somewhere where I knew very little about it. Um, I wanted to go to a place where I didn't know anybody and I just wanted to show up there and just see what materialized in, at, once I got there. And so I, I specifically went there with a plan of no plan. I, I talked about this explicitly, but I, I had a plan of no plan. And that's what I mean by the type A personality, <laughs> like embracing the unknown. Um, so I, so I went, so I moved to Australia, um, with, with essentially no plan and kind of my, my hope for being there was just to like find this next path of life. Um, I, I, I gotta tell you one of the things that was happening in the background of all this, um, even through my, my time working on the business, um, and throughout my time in Australia was I, I began to get very interested in the way that I walked. <clears throat> so uh, let me just tell you a, a quick story about how this all came about. Um, so for my entire life, people have made comments about the way I walked. I mean, I can remember in elementary school, kids talking about the way that I walked, like, Hey, hey Chris, he's got kind of a funny walk, you know, like, like, I like it, like, it looks kind of cool, but it's, it's kind of funny. <clears throat> and I, I never thought much of these comments because like, I, I was a very good athlete as a kid. Like, I had, I had athletic abilities that most of my friends and peers admired and envied. And so like people sort of joking about the way I walked, it just didn't bother me because I just didn't think that it was really relevant. And, and so I always, I always blew it off. Like I never even considered it twice, but in 2015, in fact, it was February 15th of 2015. I remember the exact day, the exact moment. I'm in Santa Cruz, California for a friend's wedding. And me and a group of friends were walking back uh, from, a, from a bar to our Air, Airbnb where we were staying, just walking down the street casually after dinner. And somebody made a comment about the way I walked. Once again, I, I don't remember which friend it was, but somebody's like, hey, look, look at Chris's 
you know, his gait, look how he bounces up and down when he walks. And, and for whatever reason, it was, it was the first time that that comment really stuck in my head. And, and I, I can't really tell you why. I, I surmised that it was because I like finally had the headspace to consider the way that I walked. Like I was no longer competing in anything. Like my, my thoughts were filled with, you know, business strategies and, and sales pitches and things like that. Uh, I was no longer concerned with athletics. So like, I, you know, I wasn't offended, but I was just curious. I'm like, what is it about the way that I walk that people notice? Because to me, walking was just as natural as walking can be. It doesn't feel weird. So I get back to Knoxville, Tennessee, where I was living at the time. <clears throat> and um, I, I, had a, I had a daily habit of just taking a long walk around my neighborhood after work every day. Uh, usually just to decompress, you know, think, think about things that happened that day or even just to clear my mind and think about nothing at all. But I, I got back there and I st started taking the, these evening walks again. And I found that I was just intensely curious about the way that I walked. And so it was like almost without me noticing for months on end, I'd go out for these walks and I would just watch myself walk. And I would just try to get an understanding of like what my gait was like, what were the maybe eccentricities of it, what were the inefficiencies of it, you know, how did it look to all these people throughout my entire life that I had never noticed. And this, this became just an, an absolute fascination for me. Um, so much so that I, I developed a very good understanding of what was so peculiar about the way that I walked. And so at some point, once I had a firm grasp of kind of what was happening as I walked, I decided that I would try to change it. I decided I would try to walk in a more efficient way, you know, to be a, a little smoother. I it sort of bounced up and down. I was like on my toes, walked pretty high. I thought, I wonder if I can change the way that I walk, you know, for no other reason than just a little a fun experiment. And so this snowballed for a while. Um, I, I, go out there and I try to make these very subtle adjustments in my body and, you know, try to relax some muscles that were overly active and try to activate other muscles that were under engaged. Um, and then it was in August of 2015. This is about six months later after that comment was made to me <clears throat> that um, I, I had this incredible experience that really, like solidified this growing curiosity about how I moved. And what, what happened was I was, I was just on one of my normal walks again, trying to adjust some things in the way that I moved, but I was really struggling. I, I, I realized that my left hip was doing a lot more work than my right hip with each stride I took. So one side of my body was just doing more work than the other. And I was trying very, very hard to willfully correct this, this imbalance and it wasn't working and I was getting quite frustrated. And so I, I don't know where I came up with this. I think I had maybe read it or listened to it on a, a YouTube video or something, but I, I was like, well, maybe, maybe instead of trying to just force my body to do something, maybe I'll just ask it to do something and see how it responds.
And so I was like, you know, I, I've tried everything else. Let's just give this a go. And so I'm walking down the street and I, and I say out loud, I'm like speaking from my mouth to my physicality. I say, I want my hips to work equally as I walk. And I just cleared my mind and watched what happened. And instantly and spontaneously, I felt this like array of contractions and relaxations happening in my body that I had never felt before. Um, I, I felt this line of, line of tension run up the right side of my body from my glutes to my trapezius. Um, and, it, and it brought my right side into a level of activation that I'd never been able to, to achieve before on my own. And, and this was fascinating because it was like, it was like I somehow communicated with this deep, innate intelligence within my body that had clear, that is clearly operating in the background of, of our subconscious all the time. Um, but as the sort of type A personality that I was, I thought that I was just, I was in control. My body was a machine that I operated and, you know, whatever I told it, whatever I wanted it to do, that's what it did. But really there was just this huge, huge depth of intelligence in my body that was beyond my thinking mind. <clears throat> for, for me, this was, this was such an impactful experience that like, I couldn't get it out of my mind. And so like this, this was just, I started tumbling down this rabbit hole of internal exploration into how I moved. It, it went from looking into how I walked to looking into what my stride was like as I ran, um, what was happening when I jumped or when I threw. And, you know, initially I said that this was, this was sort of a, a story storyline that was running through um, my time in Knoxville working on the business and it ran and it continued through my time in Australia. I never had any, any intentions for this. It was, it was merely a, a, a personal fascination that I shared with almost no one. Like it was totally a, a, a private thing that I, I did alone in the evenings when I walked or when I exercised. Um, and so it, it followed me to Australia and while I was in Australia trying to come up with, um, my next path in life and, and really doing my best to just be open to, to opportunities and, and people and relationships and then just see what would come of it. Um, I very unexpectedly reached this point where I realized that I had, I had really become the best athlete that I'd ever been. You know, maybe I wasn't trained and conditioned to the level that I had been before as a decathlete, but I had without a doubt tapped into um, a potential, a, a command really for my, for my movements that I had never ever been close to before. And it, it was, it was over the span of about two weeks that I started to have these very strange ideas of coming back to the decathlon. I never, not one time in my entire retirement ever considered coming back to decathlon. I mean, it's laughable. 
but it was during a two week period from late September to early October that I just had these ideas. I was like, you know, with all the reflection that I've done over these past five years, you know, thinking about how I had lost touch with my intrinsic love of, of movement and athletics, um, thinking about, you know, what it, what a privilege it really is to be able to train as an athlete, what a privilege it is just to have a, to be gifted with a, with a body that is capable of incredible athletic feats. Um, and, and now all this, this business about being able to work and change my body in ways that I'd never known before. Like it all just came together very unexpectedly in a short period of time that like, yes, I, I have to go back. I have to go back to the sport of track and field. I have to go back to the decathlon and show that I can do this whole thing in a much better way. Like a, like a much, a much more, um, you know, not, not just a better way in terms of performance, but in terms of fulfillment, you know, and, and maybe I can be an example for younger athletes, just like, you know, the 24, 25 year old Chris Helwick, who was just devastated because he got injured and, you know, had to sit out for a year. Maybe I can be sort of like an example for younger athletes and, and somehow shed some light on the joy that is possible in an endeavor like this, no matter how it turns out. And that's not to, it's not to discount aiming for a gold medal. Like I'm aiming for a gold medal too. I, I'm just saying that like, whether you hit it or not, doesn't necessarily determine if you've had a good experience or not. You know, if you, if you just go about your training and your competition in the right way, you know, there, there's really no way you can lose. Um, and, and really what I see and what I think is so, uh, is so sad, you know, is that um, <clears throat> so many athletes at the highest level are perpetually disappointed. They're, they're unsatisfied. And I, I was like that. I was, I was the case in point of that. And I just don't think it has to be that way. And, and on top of that, I think that if as athletes, we go about our business in, in a way that is much more appreciative of the experience and understanding that the process itself is where the value is, then great outcomes will be achieved even easier. You know, it's, it's not like we're sacrificing one or the other. It's that they go together. And so, you know, anybody who says, well, that's, that's just, that's soft, you know, like that's not, that's, that's not like mental toughness or, or anything like that. You know, that's, that's kind of foo-foo sort of stuff. Like, let's just make sure everybody has fun. No, I, I'm saying that when you have fun, you perform at your best. And that, that is really the, the key lesson that I learned in my time away. And that's, um, that's the message that I'm bringing back with me. Bring it back, baby. But we're not calling it a comeback, Chris. Don't right. call it a comeback. A couple of things just within that story. Awesome story, by the way. I really like that. Something as small as 
hey, do you think I can walk differently? Turned into, hey, I'm going to try and win a gold medal at the Olympics again. Um, so I, I always I always love, again, it's like small little turns along the way. There's so many forks in the road, so many opportunities to not say yes or do the thing that you needed to do um, that I think it's awesome. So one, awareness. Awareness of yourself. I think awareness is the one number one most important thing you should be practicing. Everybody should be practicing awareness at every second of every day. Um, you see something, say something, for, for lack of a, a little bit of a pun there. But um, yeah, just understand what's going on uh, you know it, it was very ambiguous to me at first like well, what am I supposed to be paying attention to it's like you're supposed to be paying attention to it well what's it well you know like it that thing you just pay attention to it whether that's how you walk whether that's how you drink water um, that's one thing that I started today it's just different like understanding what's going on this whole process it's pretty incredible what your body can do mm. um, and you know being being grateful and kind of putting it out there too, uh, just saying hey could you please body just like do this for me this one time? Uh, it's very, very interesting. Um, I do believe everything happens at the right time. Um, and clearly it happened for you. I mean, it would have been nice. It would have been convenient if you kind of had this realization that year after you got hurt, um, because heck we don't know what happens, but it happened now. And that's a great thing or it happened then. And that's a great thing because now you are where you are, which is the most important. I think again, you're hanging out with me on a Wednesday night. I mean, clearly you hit the top, man. You only can go down from here. Um, right now. <laughs> negative, uh, negative thoughts versus positive thoughts. Uh, again, just going back, like if you are hating your working out and you're hating and not enjoying that pursuit of your potential, um, you're not going to be working out as good you're, or as well. I don't, not, not an English major. Um, you're not going to be as productive within working out because you're going to have those negative thoughts and what do negative thoughts bring negative occurrences. So you need to be positive. You have to think positive. You have to enjoy the pursuit of the potential because we never really get there. You make it to one, you win one gold medal. You're not going to be happy until you win your second, right? Mm -hmm. If you win your second, really not going to be happy until you win your third. So the, the destination, as we said, you know, a long hour ago or short hour ago, um, you're, it's, it's the way and how you get there and what happens along the way, which should be most important. Because if you always are just shooting for that destination, you're never actually going to get there, unfortunately. So those were just a couple, um, couple takeaways I had, which I, I really like the way you said it. I really like the, the story and I really like how it happened. Um, so then you started what we're not calling a comeback and you're here mm. and what it, what has it been like since you really just decided you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna shoot for it again and let's let's see what happens. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's been incredible. Um, it's it's now been ten and a half months since I've been back into full time training. Um, I came back to the U.S. and spent a couple of years. Um, sort of getting my life together in uh, in a practical sense, uh, getting my finances together, uh, then began building the relationships and the partnerships that I needed in order to make this process happen. Um, but, you know, since I've been back in the last 10 months, it's, it's, it's been probably the most enjoyable year that I've had um, in, in track and field. And the reason for that is because I decided to enjoy it. Um, in in a more specific sense, it's it's been interesting coming back after being out of the sport for um, about six and a half years. You know, I I think a, a lot of people 
we're sort of waiting to see if I could actually come back after all this time and then return to a, to a higher level of training and competition. And um, I, I really didn't have any doubts myself, but I, I guess I did want um, <laughs> some of that confirmation as well. And so the, the, the last year has been, has been really cool. I've, I've been pleased with how I've been able to come back into the sport and pick up um, especially the technical elements of the events really well. Um, it was honestly, it was kind of like right, just riding a bike. Like I picked up on the events from a technical standpoint, right where I left off. Um, <clears throat> they, they, they all certainly need um, to be continued to improve upon on, on a continuous basis. Uh, but I was pretty pleased with that. Um, one of the things that I realized was that as, as an older athlete, I'm 34 now, I'll be 35 in March. Um, I, I can't handle quite as much volume of training as I used to. I used to be just a, a hell of a workhorse, um, just almost unable to be tired out. Uh, but I, I, I can't, I can't match that anymore. And so what I've, what I've had to do, you know, as a, as an older hopefully wiser athlete is just be more um, intentional and more efficient with my training, um, which, which has been a, a great thing. And I don't think that I've, I've really missed anything as a result of that. And, and I need more recovery time. Um, you know, I really appreciate the value of recovery now. I think before, you know, recovery just meant, you know, me not training. It was just, you know, it's, when you're in college, you know, your recovery days are you out playing with your friends, going to football games. You, you're not really thinking about recovery. You're just not spending time at the track. Whereas now my recovery is something that I, I take a special interest in. Um, you know, my sleep regimen is super important. The, the diet that I have, um, you know, even the way that I use my mind off the track um, is, is really important. So it's, I, I, I've had a fantastic year. I, I managed to, um, go back to the U S championships this past summer and qualified for those. Um, I finished ninth at the event, which qualified me for, uh, another Thorpe cup, U S versus Germany decathlon. And I was, I had the privilege of representing U S once again in, um, international competition. And I felt like this has been a really good warm up for, for 2020. Um, I, I knew going into this that I needed at least one full season under my belt in order to just get back into the rhythm and the pace and the demands of, of competition. So I, one of the biggest accomplishments that I had in 2019 was finishing three decathlons in full health. I, I just, I thought that that was, um, that was, that was what my, my aim was at the beginning of the season. I wanted to do, to do three decathlons um, and, and stay healthy doing them. Um, and I just, I felt like that's going to set me up really well for the next year. I love it, man. Congratulations, Chris. Um, going to the national championships only a few months after coming back is pretty impressive. Um, I think from anybody's standards. So clearly you're doing something right and keep doing it. Um, that is awesome, man. And I guess, the last thing, um, so you're, we, you knew what you were going to do the last time you retired. Yeah. 
what is, you know, maybe 2020 works, maybe it doesn't, but we now understand it's the journey, not the destination, right? So no matter what happens, everybody's proud and we all appreciate you putting on that jersey at least a minimum of one more times. Um, maybe 2024, I mean, at 38, that would be a spectacle. Uh, let's, let's be very honest about that. Yep. That would be something. So I'm rooting for you, man. I think that would be awesome. Um, but 2028 LA would be cool, probably a little out of the way. Um, so what is, I guess, for, you know, Michael Jordan's second retirement, he went to own a basketball team, if, I think, if I'm not mistaken. What, um, what are you looking to do in your, your post-career career? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, like, one, one of the most amazing things about what I'm doing now is just I never thought I was going to be involved in athletics again. I, I really didn't. Like, throughout – my entire life, or at least, you know, college on one of the very frequent questions that an athlete gets is, you know, do you want to coach? And I never had any interest in coaching whatsoever. Like it just did not interest me in the least. And I was absolutely certain that I didn't want to do it. Um, I I didn't want to be a trainer. I didn't want to be an agent. Um, I just, I, I just didn't really see myself being involved in athletics after I retired. Um, so being an athlete again is surprising enough, but one of, one of the other things that I've realized over the last, uh, couple of years, just very, very recently is, is how, how important this domain is to me. Um, <clears throat> it isn't so much track and field itself. I do love track and field and that's, that's what I do. That's it's what suits me. Um, but what I'm really interested in is just what I was talking about before in trying to help young athletes find more fulfillment through their sports. Um, I, I don't know exactly what it looks like. I just know that I have found myself in, in the space that I want to stay in. Um, you know, when I got into advertising before I, I realized that that was not the space for me. Um, I, I tried a number of other things as well, but you know, nothing had ever grabbed me the way that athletics does. And I think athletics is really just the medium that, that I, that I want to use to help people find more fulfillment, um, in the process of what they're doing. Um, so I, it's, it's kind of a vague answer. I, I, I want to work in, in the arena of, of athletics. Um, I've gotten into coaching and mental training with uh, a lot of the athletes that I work with at Colorado State University right now. Um, and it's, it's something that I never saw myself doing, but that I, I enjoy a ton. And I would really just love to build on um, my abilities to train athletes, maybe even train coaches um, in, in how to how to help athletes become more aware, just like you said. Um, I totally agree with you that awareness is the skill of all skills. Um, I, I would love to help athletes learn how to harness that because uh, it is something that can be learned and, and developed. And I just, I, yeah, I just, I, I've gone through such a transformation myself that I would, I would, and it's meant 
more to me than I than I can describe that I would I know that I would get a lifetime of intrinsic satisfaction from helping others realize that as well. I love it. You and me both, man. We're just doing it in slightly different ways, and that's what I like about it. Our stories, hey, they uh, they uh, they intersected here. Hopefully, they intersect a couple more times. So. One last time, Chris Helwick, decathlete, USA Track and Field, Olympic hopeful for 2020. Chris, thank you so much for joining me today, man. It's absolutely a blast. Hey, same here, Michael. I, I appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Our Athletes with Chris Helwick. As I said, really interesting story. Um, just trying to make that comeback. Don't call it a comeback, but we're trying to make it. So we'll see what happens. I wish him the best. I hope everything works out. And obviously, coming back in, in a very short amount of time, making national championships is at least a step in the right direction. So very excited about that. So please, everything, all of Chris's information will be in the show notes, all of his socials, all of his websites. Please follow us as well at ourathletes.us on Instagram. Instagram at our athletes USA on Twitter, www.ourathletes.us, and Michael at ourathletes.us if you want to send me some feedback. Always open. Please give this show five stars so that way more and more people can hear these incredible stories. And other than that, I appreciate each and every one of you, and I hope you make it a wonderful day.